The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody who is tuned in. You have tuned in to The Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. Uh, the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City sponsors The Glenn Show. I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And I'm here every week. And this week, I'm here with Chaim Shveki. Welcome, Chaim. Thank you, Glenn. It's a pleasure. Uh, how do you want to introduce yourself, Chaim? Chaim is a writer, and he is a man of uh, many parts. Uh, who has uh, just uh, emerged from an extended period of service on the ground, on the field of conflict in Ukraine, where he volunteered fighting with Ukrainian forces. And he's here to talk about that, amongst other things. So welcome again, Chaim. Thank you. Well, to introduce myself, um, I think I can handle that. Chaim Shwaki, and namely, a writer by vocation. Um, libertarian by political disposition, um, libertine by temperament, uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> traveler by disposition, and a royal acolyte and viewer of the Glenshaw. And sometimes, thank contribute. you. Huh? Yes, he's been contributing notes from the field. And uh, in fact, our relationship goes way back uh, to when the Glenshaw first went. Uh, on Patreon and uh, Substack, and uh, Hayam was helping me conceive how to articulate what the mission of the Glenn Show is. I don't think we necessarily used all of that copy, but you did produce some copy for us that I thought was very stimulating. Uh, you, re- you remember That's that? That's right. I do remember that. Um, our relationship probably goes back at least correspondence three years now. We're going to have something like that. And uh, I suppose it was only an eventuality that I get to speak to you vis-a-vis. And uh, it's a mutual pleasure. I thought I'd reiterate uh, for the elucidation of the audience how that came to be what we were speaking about just before sure. I started recording. So I believe it was the vice presidential debate. Um, of 2020. In 2020. Right. So it's got to be at least three years now. And I had written an article about this um, circus and how we take it solemnly. And uh, for my own amusement um, and the amusement of my girlfriend at the time and my small coterie of friends. And at the behest of that girlfriend, she told me, why don't you send this article in? You know? I said, uh, you know, I never considered myself ready to send in the article. So I never sent anything in before. And I don't think the writer should really ever consider himself uh, ready. There's no such thing as perfection in any field, really. So she says, why don't you send it into that uh, guy you've been raving about uh, lately from this show that you discovered that you said was like a uh, contrarian, uh, open-ended, non-pretense, just open discussion 
Um, yeah, Glenn. Glenn. I'll send it to the black guys. I sent it into uh, Glenn Lowry, and uh, you were one of the first to respond. And as I told you before, and I want to say to you now, and I like the same public, um, happy that my first article, not every writer, seldom does a writer get his first, the first article he decides to send in immediately accept it. And, and believe you me, there's been a slew of rejections uh, after that. That's just part of the craft, and one soon gets used to that. But I am proud, and I'll be forever grateful that my first article came by way of your hands. That's something kind of you just say. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. And, I, uh, I should give some credit to uh, Brian Anderson, who was serving as the editor of City Journal which is the magazine that uh, is published under the auspices of the Manhattan Institute, where I'm a fellow, who looked kindly upon your contribution. uh, And so working together. Absolutely. So you're you're a novelist, are you? Um, I'm a novelist of sorts. And so uh, a book gets published, I don't know if you officially call yourself that, but I never thought the writer is um, beholden to imprimatur of a publishing house to call himself a writer. It's not a career, it's a vocation. It's not something that comes from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. So it's not because a gilt-edged business card says writer (laughs) on it that makes you a writer. So um, writing a novel is something other than writing an article. Even an article, people don't... People read... An article, you're a speed reader, and I always ask you how you did it, and I'm jealous about that uh, you can absorb information, process it, and read. I'm a very slow reader because I think the writer, when he reads words, he's, he's analyzing, he's digesting, and he's seeing it in a way, not only what the, he's not only trying to extract the meaning of the text, but he's seeing the style and the form and the morphological way that the, the author constructed it. So he's seeing it a different way. And as I'm reading, it's not only about just absorbing the the the, uh, the information on the first plane. That's why um, I'm a very slow reader. Um, but in any case, um, I am working on a novel, and when that comes out, uh, we'll get there. We'll see. But they okay. are categorized as sort of writer. Writers, he's panoptic in his interests and his forms, and people say. They always ask me, oh, what do you write about? What kind of writer you are? And I don't really think of it in kind. I'll write about anything from you know, my specialty coffee here to geopolitics, like I've been writing with you recently. Speaking Hi, about been making contributions at the Glenn Lowry newsletter, the substack.com. Uh, yeah, that, started, has a- that actually started as a, as a personal... Letter, letter to you, and it kind of evolved into what we cheekily called uh, dispatches, um, reviving that uh, old world World War One term communiques, and it turns into something that I didn't anticipate. Um, but in the retrospect, uh, given my objectives of why I went there, I think um, I think we did a good thing. It amused me when you called me the foreign correspondent. <laughs> and let me just say here uh, to you that I'm, I'm happier being the semi-official forward correspondent of 
the Glenn Show than any official correspondent for CNN or your Sunday, Saturday morning newspaper that go to Kiev or the Bib and, uh, you know, write from the hotel. There's a lot of good writers and observers there in uh, Ukraine. I'm not putting it down, but I think we might have helped we achieve something different and a little more intimate than what you would see in the broader uh, name brands of your magazines and, and uh, news outlets. We're proud, we're proud to have you. We appreciate the contribution that you're making. How did a, a young writer such as yourself end up on the field of conflict in Ukraine? You want to tell us about that? Well, I, I was living urgently sourced, and uh, I was living in uh, the Middle East and Israel and Palestine. I was residing there for uh, some reasons, and I found myself a writer who really wasn't writing. I haven't read a book in three months, and I wanted to... I hadn't seen family in three years. The high holidays was coming up. And I think three years was a sufficient time to give a, a visitation to the mama. And I had three months uh, hiatus between um, that decision and until going home to New York. And Ukraine um, came between that. My thoughts naturally turned to Ukraine. And like I said, uh, sometimes the writer has to leap over his desk. And I, you know, one thinks of Byron in Greece or Orwell in Catalonia. One of our dispatches was, uh, was named homage to Ukraine and an echo to that. Or uh, Anthony Burgess in Malay, Hemingway in Cuba, Patrick McFarmer also in Greece, Granby in anywhere, like I said. And as a writer, um, what I really wanted to, especially in this uh, conflict, I wanted to remove from between myself and the source the, the screen, the television screen, because no matter how high death the imagery, it could always be a um, low quality resolution. No matter how pixelated and sharp uh, the screen, It'll never strike as vividly or impressively as it does the naked eye. And as a writer, you want to remove as many veils between yourself and the subject if you, as possible if you want to scrutinize it in a 2020 um, severely analytical way. So I will not pretend to the expertise that I don't possess, but I thought that instead of having the topographical view and the study uh, looking at the map to be in that point on the map itself, trading ink for flesh. And I went there, basically I had two objectives. I wanted to gain the perspective of the citizen and that uh, of the soldier as well, from the bed to the barrows, from the home to the home base, from the capitals to the headquarters, from the cafes to the cafeteria mess hall. And in that view, um, I joined the Foreign Legion. I was afraid, was a hes- hesitant at first because I only had three months to give until my flight back to the East Coast, my uh, homecoming, that they wouldn't accept me in an actionable capacity. 
because Wait, man, I'm not following you. I'm not following yes. you. When you decided to volunteer and serve, you knew that the, the term of your service in the uh, in the Foreign Legion, you knew the term of your service would be limited to three months, which is the time that I you had, had to spare. Right. I knew I was going to need three months. I had three months to give. I had this lacuna of time, and I dedicated it to going to Ukraine and seeing something of it for myself, especially with this issue in the media and since being exposed publicly the arguments are not very enlightening, enlightening what I've heard. I mean most of these debates that go on, Ukraine yay, nay, it seems to me most people are arguing from the gut rather than the pituitary gland let's say. Like I said, I wanted to remove my the, the screen and the media between myself and that story and get at the story on the ground in the colloquial phrasing and in this case literally in the ground, dug in the ground. And so I had three months to give and I dedicated that time to Ukraine. And because it was only three months, what I was uh, saying was that I was hesitant they wouldn't accept me in an actionable capacity of joining the Foreign Legion because right. you there's only there's a minimum amount of time that you have to go through basic training. Those who don't have military experience, and most of them did not. That's as far as maybe legionnaires. It's like an eclectic uh, group, a hodgepodge of different characters. Um, and they don't want to invest in you if you're only there for a brief uh, state. So through a lot of chutzpah and convincing, I got uh, more than I asked for in the end. And I think in the retrospect, I stood on those two objectives and uh, given the time there. Now, you said you were coming from the Middle East. Did you want to be more specific? Um, yeah, I was just residing in um, ad residence in Tel Aviv. Let's um, so, leave it at that. You are an American by birth, uh, but you're yes. also an Israeli citizen? I'm American by birth um, and Israeli by birthright. Did your connections to either of your homelands factor in to your uh, judgment about uh, the priority of serving and devoting your time in this way to the conflict in Ukraine? In two ways. Um, first of all, to get to Ukraine, you have to, by perforce, go through the territory of Poland. There's no direct entering Ukraine. You go through Poland and you basically show up at the border and you say, hey, I'm here to volunteer, just like that. And they guide you through the channels and set you and allocate you accordingly to uh, your potential and experience. But the connection of Poland and Ukraine to Jews is a dark one. So in, in, in that sense, I we, you don't you don't hang the prince for the king's sins. And this experience I isolated um, in itself. It doesn't matter what I t- I took this what What's going on, uh, what Ukraine is going is undergoing as an isolated experience. There's, there could be a wrong yesterday and a right today. Um, and whenever one hears rhetoric 
about certain people being a a non-people. Um, I think as someone who's been living in Israel and Palestine and with the history and the Jewish history of saying, well, you're not really, there's people to this day that don't consider Israel a real country, considered a colonial outpost. Or on the other side, the ultra-Zionistic contingent would not consider Palestinians a real people, but only a, a reaction against Jewish immigration. And I think both these notions are very ominous and sinister, and we know where they lead. So from the beginning, from the get-go, when you hear certain rhetoric, when you hear, for example, a megalomaniacal demagogue calling the people not a real people, I think the world ought to perk up to that. So in that sense, my history came in um, to inform me and to perhaps I was a little more heedful of that message and the sinisterism that lurks behind it. And, um, you know, people often, yeah. So that it factors in in that way of thinking of your question. Sure. Now you have military experience in your background, I take it. Uh, so you didn't, you didn't have to start from scratch as a, as a soldier. Um, no, I didn't have to start from scratch. Um, but I don't want to get into the details of that. I might. No, I don't. I don't mind that at all. So, Foreign Legion, where, are your, where were your compatriots coming from? Uh, some of your reporting from the field is just fascinating about the details of life. Yeah. Uh, and all of that, but I'll let, I'll let you fill in the, de- the blanks on that. Well, like I said, it was a brief, but it was a concentrated experience where it lacked in... in uh, in like a, uh, in length of time, it made up for in depth. So when it lacked this way, it made up this way. And honestly, the slew of characters that I met in this time, just uh, I think I compared it to a hostel, but you know, it was a it was a very eclectic and. Uh, it's an experience that you can't really. Well, I don't want to use the cliche, but you really can't. You really can't make it up. And uh, the I was in two different units. I wrote about the four horsemen, as we lamely called ourselves. This was comprised of Americans mostly. Um, it was Luke and Adam and Gideon and Chaim, and we soon realized that, like, we all met each other, that we we're all the elders of biblical names, and we just called ourselves the Four Horsemen from that time, and people can read about that story. So that was my first uh, unit. But the hostel itself is is an eclectic mix, uh, internationally speaking. You get people. I met people from Czech Republic. I met people from Australia. I met people from South Korea. Britain, uh, Americans. It wasn't majority Americans by any means, but English was obviously the lingua franca, uh, in which we all communicated. And we had a, uh, a Canadian uh, general who was from all over the place. And 
but we spoke a common language in um, in uh, in our intentions of being there. And everybody came from many different backgrounds, and but we all were serving a unified in the purpose. Insofar as you're at liberty to say, I'm curious about your. Um, integration into the Ukrainian forces or lack thereof and the coordination of your activities, foreign legionnaires on the one hand and uh, regular Ukrainian military on the other. And were, were the tasks that you were assigned different in virtue of the fact that uh, you were, you know, under the, they're under the conditions that you and your colleagues were and that kind of thing? Well, like I said, when you get there, you, um, it's where certain filtration points where they interview you. They first register that you're, um, I was going to say sane, but I think uh, sane enough would be the word. And there's foreign legion and then there's intelligence uh, units in the Ukraine army. Um, I started in foreign legion, but I eventually got it to a reconnaissance unit. So that was uh, something separate than the regular battalions. I managed to convince my way in there, but I wanted it behooves me to say from now that I was only I was a volunteer. So as a volunteer, I can come and go of my own volition, according to my serve, according to my own will. There are paid contracted soldiers that are there that signed a contract to support the war for a minimum of three years or until such time that the war ends. Let's hope that it's less than three years, inshallah. So there, my couple of missions is nothing compared to my last reconnaissance unit that is still there and still in the field. My last mission of Kherson, I was only there for one day the morning of the push there and while they were there the whole week. So the, my, view of the, my view of the word Orwellian is in a line, I suppose it is what it is. And so it was what it was. While someone usually speaks not to embellish or not to uh, use hyperbole or euphemism at the same time, you don't uh, mitigate out of a false sense of modesty or humbleness. It just straightforward report what it was, nothing more, nothing less. It's not me who really, it's not me who, who wrote the events, only me who wrote down uh, the events. Uh, the Chronicle, which you were so kind to publish. And there's a lot more, by the way, that just had this stack of amorphous notes that I'm trying to still to this day uh, they say out of three months I've got more material than I now really. people should know you, you have your own uh, Substack uh, platform where you're putting up oh, yes. material <laughs> how, yeah, will they, they, how will they find you? well I um, I've yielded to trend and modernity and uh, started the whole Substack thing even you know uh, for me, this whole publicity thing is, is very uncomfortable. And that's not a sense of false humbleness. It really is just not my, my type. 
uh, you I wanted to talk to as old new friend as you as you put it, uh, and I would never say no to that. The Substack, I figured it is it's a place for all the renegade writings, all the unofficial ones, all the deviant yeah. writings, all the ones that won't be put up in the 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 strict contours of your themed or niche magazines. You know, what's right for City Journal, for example, is not what's right for National Review, is not what's right for whatever magazine it is. So all those renegades, this will serve as a as a home, as they say in the cliche that uh, journal means uh, for those writings. So I opened it up and I thought it would be a good place to, and they let you put up what you want. And they have lawyers free speech, and that's something that really resonates with me. So I called it uh, the Garland, and basically it's under my name, uh, Chaim Schwartz. Very well. And then you're you guys, thing, uh, your, your four horsemen uh, experienced some uh, real conflict, some real combat. You 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 took fire. You were uh, suffered uh, casualties. Uh, um, well, my Fort Worth then was one reconnaissance unit that I was in a second one. And we each went our own ways, and now they're all back to their countries of uh, origin. Um, Everyone got home safely. From that group, yes, I believe so. I'm in touch with Luke, um, who's in Czech Republic. He's American. He married a Czech girl. He's living there in uh, hope to join him for a side pool beer sometime soon. And then Adam, um, we've been out of touch with Adam. We hope he's okay, but that's a different story. I don't want to air too much personal here. Sure. We, speak, we speak afterwards. I'll talk to you about that. Ideon has his own story. Um, and that's written about. I don't know if she's still there or not. Uh, and then my second reconnaissance unit in Fairson, I haven't been in touch with them since I left. I was only with them for the last month or a few weeks. And yes, that's it. But I'm happy to say that my original friends uh, from the four are all, uh, are all well and We've been forged on, in this cauldron. Uh, we forged a friendship that really cannot be created under normal circumstances. And they're friends that I would have for the rest of my days. And it's, it's like in the army. When you go through something of this sort together, the circumstances really make the relationships between you. When you undergo a certain challenge and come out of it together, there's people of all different backgrounds that would never in the normal circumstances, uh, you know, even approach a type of person at a dinner party and talk to him. But under these four circumstances, you realize you become best of friends. And... But Luke and Adam and I, we would have got along in, in, in any scene in a, in, a, in a bar or in a, in a mess hall. So, yeah. 
So I have a nostalgic, I have a nostalgic place to these feelings, but I do. I, I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you about uh, how how things are going in the conflict, and whether you have a sense of how successful the spring offensive of the Ukrainian forces may have been. About well, uh, you know what the prospects are for resolution of the conflict on terms favorable to the Ukrainians. Well, and so on. Yeah, much is made. Um, Prigozhin. I think, yeah, well, um, I think that the reason that we should support the advance of Ukraine on the field is that we should that we can to support their advantage on the negotiating floor. So when the time comes for talk, and hopefully it does, Ukraine will have more to offer having won it, and Russia will have more to gain having lost it. So I'm not going to... I think that after three weeks, Ukraine proved to the world something that none of the so-called experts would have ever predicted. And I think uh, to prognosticate an outcome to this would be foolish of, of me to, uh, to even essay or uh, attempt to see where this is going. But I think we have to understand that Ukraine is a cordon sanitaire to the, re- the rest of Western Europe. We think of Poland and the stability and freedom. Poland has never been as free and as prosperous as it has since it's joined NATO. And we understand the necessity of Poland for stable Europe. And Ukraine comes, is, is a buffer zone between Russia and Poland herself. And I think the necessity of keeping Ukraine secure is in the interest of Poland most directly, the European continent, and ergo, the United States and the Western allies. Uh, I don't know how direct an interest we have to have to support that. I think that's an obvious uh, notion. Well, as you know, there are many in the American political debate on the right and on the left, who, who take issue with the judgment you just rendered about exactly what the American stake is. This is a European problem. Yes, NATO, but the U.S. shouldn't be doing all the heavy lifting, uh, et cetera. Well, well, on the Nuclear last, uh, war being risked, you know, you push Putin into sure. a corner, the stakes are very high, et cetera. And what are the stakes of letting anybody who threatens uh, tactical nukes get away with their, their will was the threat tomorrow uh, to every other uh, country that sees us. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, the last episode 
that I happened to catch of uh, the Glenn's show, or TGS as the cool kids call it, was with uh, <laughs> Cornell West, the president yeah. of Spyre. Now, I'm glad you mentioned him because that's exactly who I had in mind when I said exactly. Well, that's exactly who I thought of. So I thought I the arguments that uh, he made in that section, that segment that you obviously asked him about uh, Ukrainian issues because he's running for president. I thought he encapsulated a lot of the points that are made by dare I call them I won't say the apologists. I know we would contest that term hotly, but at least let's say the skeptics. To this war. So maybe I'll take a minute to turn the sugar post to the good doctor, if I may. We can take Please. it from there. Please. Okay. So um, you obviously asked him about his um, thoughts on Ukraine and what he thinks about it. And he begins uh, by attempting a view from the reverse side, as most people of the counter argument do, which is no bad thing in itself. I think it's. Uh, a necessity, actually, for understanding how we're supposed to move forward. Know thine enemies, sort of. Um, but the way he goes about extracting our sympathies is asking how we would feel in the place of the erstwhile, dare I say, evil empire with a tottering economy if NATO was on our borders. And in almost lamenting tones, he speaks about the loss to the USSR of in the past few decades of 14 former satellites. Now, I wouldn't suggest that, you know, Cornell feels uh, bad himself about the loss to uh, Russia. And I'm sure Russia is very pained. And I'm sure that uh, Putin feels very bad about his loss to these countries. But what if we would canvas those countries themselves? I doubt that the pain is mutual. And if I don't think the Pain is likewise, and if we bothered to ask these countries, I don't think they very much regret the breakup and wouldn't want to be reinfolded in the former Russian Empire. Um, I think it would no, they wouldn't. But it, it, excuse me for interrupting. I, I just want to say on on Cornell's behalf, I think he would concede the point uh, that. Uh, the countries thus liberated uh, enjoy their liberation, he, but he would ask us to to think about it from the point of view of what he called the Russian Empire uh, and the, the the feeling of being overtaken by history and being cornered. Uh, and in that circumstance, I can see I'm not persuading you, but I'm just trying to complete his thought. Lashing out, Sure. Just as we would lash out if we were in American empire terms to find ourselves in a similar situation. I also hear this argument that uh, Putin uh, has his reasons. Well, I never thought he didn't. That a dictator would act dictatorial, that a totalitarian would act in a totalitarian manner is no surprise and it's certainly understandable. Here... Here we have in the nefarious figure of Putin, a sadistic autocrat and demagogue, jealous of power, who disappears journalists, poisons oppositional voices, jails reporters, disrupts global norms, invades other countries, not only trespasses upon their borders, but trespasses upon their identity. That's even more sinister. Suppresses freedom of uh, speech, religion, uh, sexuality, expression, 
there's always Siberia for the dissenter. He favors uh, bribery over bargains, uh, threats over uh, compromise. And then he has the chutzpah to blame the U.S. for coming to the aid of those former satellites and their allies who want to retain some semblance of freedom and not be reinfolded in the under the Russian route. So I stipulate that Putin's a bad guy. Why am I, an American, at war with him? You're not only at war with him, but you're aiding his friends that are at war with him as well. And the stability, I put the cronyism, favoritism, chauvinism, annexation, mock referendum, bribery, intimidation, poison, murder. I don't think um, these are, I know which side I enlist upon when it, it, it takes no, uh, you, you often hear that there's, there's gray in this conflict, that it's not black and white. There certainly is gray, uh, but there's a lot darker shades of gray on one side and a lot lighter shades of gray on the other. And I think I know which side America should fall upon and support our allies. In the Budapest Memorandum, we might not have uh, committed in text to come into the aid of Ukraine, but we definitely committed in spirit. And I think that there will be repercussions for not doing so. Let me tell you about a wonderful product I've just discovered. It's called HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Fall is right around the corner, and HelloFresh is here to help you plan for the busy season ahead with tasty dishes delivered to your door. Simply choose your recipes and pick your delivery date. And then lay back and enjoy the last days of summer knowing that dinner is covered. The key to dinnertime success? Variety. And HelloFresh has got it. HelloFresh keeps your taste buds on their toes with 40 chef-crafted recipes to select from every week. From family-friendly... To fit and wholesome, you'll always find new and exciting recipes to try and to love. I have used and personally enjoyed this product. It saves me time, and there are many wonderful recipes. It makes cooking so easy and fast. So, go to HelloFresh.com 50Glen and use the code 50Glen. For 50% off plus free shipping, that's HelloFresh.com slash 50GLENN and enjoy 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Well, that's the point I want to explore because I'm, I'm with you on the normative assessment. Bad, evil, danger. Uh, Nothing to be uh, admired or approved of, to be rather condemned. The question is how much risk and how much cost 
am I to undertake, uh, speaking here of the United States, in virtue of that? I mean, it, there, there are a lot of evils in the world. It's, it's not necessarily my imperative to seek to stamp them all out. What's the threat to me? What, 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 what do I tell the American taxpayer is the uh, justification for the treasure and, and the risk of escalation and entailment that uh, is implied by our course of action there? Well, I did know this. A reactionary, militaristic, nationalistic, if you combine those last two, militaristic, nationalistic, you get jingoistic, revanchist Russia, backed by, indeed, sacerdotally sanctioned by a reinvigorated, chauvinistic, uh, East Orthodox church and a combination of church and state, which make any Jeffersonian shiver, that state and the and the progress that it's going upon is not in the interest of anybody, obviously the most proximist to that state, but it's not in the interest of Ukraine, it's not in the interest of Poland, it's not in the interest of Europe, and therefore it's not in the interest of the United States. And I think that letting a dictator in the 21st century, so there's some people who consider Ukraine as some sort of... Um, Matryoshka, though, whose inevitable fate is to be gobbled up by a bigger, bigger one. And I think the consequences of letting... Um, this, this conflict's not about Ukraine and Russia, per se, only. These are only the instances of it. This is about any smaller country that can be... that is uh, vulnerable to another one who, who is audacious and wants to it has its sights upon it uh, and, and clamps down upon it. And I think that the repercussions for the world is this is only an instance. And that's why um, it, there's a greater interest only about Ukraine and Russia specifically. It could be any smaller country that is next to any bigger country who has machinations against them. Okay, I got to ask you this, Chaim. Sure. Uh, what about the neo-Nazis uh, that are a part of the larger framework of Ukrainian politics and uh, militias, mobilizations, Asov Brigade and all of that? Is, is that, you're a Jew, an Israeli, an American? Well, is that Ukrainians a problem for you? Also, I'm sorry, say it again. Ukrainians have their also brigade and the Russians have their Bracta brigade. This is only a pretense. And I don't think it's to be taken seriously that Putin went into Ukraine to denazify it or to <laughs> save the, um, the Russian language in some type of Lebensraum, the uh, Russian version. Um, not at all. And whether there is some, uh, I, I don't see these, I don't see this question as mutually, I never understood why it's mutual, mutual ex exclusivity of the two sides of the conflict, why one can't fight against Ukrainian corruption and at the same time fight against Russian aggression, why we can't fight for the protection of the Russian language in certain areas of education in Ukraine while fighting for the respect of Ukraine herself in Russian territory. 
it stands out mutually exclusive. Now, like I said, there are shades of gray, uh, lighter shades of blue on one side and darker shades of gray on the other. It's very first clear to me which side I enlist on. It may not be day and night and the counter arguers tend to focus on the dusk and the dawn and in those twilights where the, the difference is less clear. But for me, it's as clear as an afternoon sun and a midnight moon. Okay. A writer has jumped over his desk. <laughs> he, he, he finds himself bivouacked within shouting distance of enemy lines with buddies uh, with whom he has developed very close uh, personal friendships and allyship and so on. Uh, he's at war. The writer is at war. These, these sensibilities seem to maybe I'm naive, clash with one another, the warrior, the martial, death. I think that's, uh, um, no, how, how often do we read of the, the poet warrior, King David? I think uh, the, the brain and the brawn in, in, in harmony. I think you have a, a, a pen in one hand and a gun in the other. I think these are complementing each other. I think it's not necessary with the pen as mightier and the sword, I think they both have their own place, but uh, I guess it's going from the foot marching of the soldier to the hat marching of the penman. But in any case, I do want to reiterate and not uh, belabor the point that I was only there as a volunteer and only there for three months, and my handful of missions is nothing compared to the paid career soldiers who are foreigners who went there, who are going to be there uh, for the duration of until the war ends, really. So, do you think it was what it was? Some of you think some of your compatriots might have resented your transitory uh, participation? That you had a, a certain date by which you were going to be out, and no, they were going to be continuing on and subject to you know grave risk. No, not I think. Um, I think that uh, people are grateful for whoever comes through Ukraine. I've met people that are contributing in many capacities, whether it's the, um, the name escapes me, the food. There's, there's a food, uh, I think, a World Food Organization. Uh, whether they're contributing food or whether they're delivering medical supplies or goods or contributing finances, I think all of those different tiers and layers and volunteers come together to form a whole, not one unit or uh, one um, uh, limb of the whole body can work on its own. It's all one. Everybody has their contributions and we all work together to, for this war effort. It's not only on the field. Uh, and in the barracks, but there is many people. Um, from when I was perambulating the still free cities of Ukraine to what I was briefly in the foreign region, I wanted to gain those two perspectives, and it it forms one drive forward. Um, so everybody's doing their part, as they say. 
you know, and I was honest from the beginning. I told him I have three months to give, but I really pushed to, it's, it's a securitist story. It, it really is. I know we can't get into detail too much now, but, uh, maybe we can get into detail on, anecdotes. Yeah. maybe we can get into detail on this. I, I, I want to, uh, bring to your, recall to your attention a phrase in, in your notes, your notes from the field that will stick with me, I'm sure, forever. The bidet of men. <laughs> uh, and Luke's, it's, Luke's, it's so Luke's, evocative. Luke is going to love that, man. <laughs> <laughs> will you explain to the audience? I didn't know audience? what a fucking bidet was before Luke went on a, a soliloquy about the... <laughs> Uh, about the celestial pleasures of the day. He goes, oh, you Americans, you know nothing about, uh, you know, <laughs> the, art, the, the, art of, the art of toiletries. <laughs> now, this is a bunch of guys who are bivouacked out in the woods somewhere who have to do the normal bodily I functions. Believe, I can't believe Mark kept that, by the way. I thought of every line <laughs> that, that I'm fighting for as a writer to keep in there and get up edited, like up. They must have kept that mistake. <laughs> no. This is Mark Sussman, the editor at the, uh, the Glenn Lowry Substack, uh, who was uh, overseeing some of the copy that Chaim uh, sent in to us, and he loved it. Not not just did he keep it; That's he, so funny. He, he he loves this idea of the bidet of I, men. You, yeah, you said I was in good hands when uh, you put the uh, mark. It really has been more than fair. Some some uh, editors, it's in the nature of the beast to just. Uh, be heavy with the, with the shears and cut off your whole writing. But Mark is uh, always fair to keep um, the idiosyncratic uh, voice of the writer um, you know, through the text. And I appreciate his, uh, his subtle hand. And also I appreciate Nikita too, because I think that um, since the commencement of my dialogue with Nikita, um, it's really a furnishes a good example of what I won't even call it debate. Uh, it's dialogue as in die, uh, conversation as in code. It's a very unmodern understanding of what debate is supposed to be. And for Nikita, he's always asking these questions. He does it in a personal way. He's when he's trying to furnish an answer to a question. He's bringing it out of himself. It's answering a personal, uh, and I'm not only talking about his progeny and his, his, his national and uh, relations to the conflict, but that's what approaching any subject should be. When you approach a complex subject of the world, you're approaching the subject itself. It is uh, by necessity a personal puzzling act. Let me explain to people that, uh, uh, excuse me again, Nikita Petrov, who is the creative director for The Glenn Show and my colleague in producing the newsletter and the podcast uh, with whom I've been working very effectively for a number of years. He's a Russian national living outside the country at the moment who has uh, been engaged in an exchange of uh, letters with uh, Kaim. Uh, about the ethics of the participation in war, amongst other things. Um, right. And I'm sure he appreciates hearing your feedback on that. Yeah, and I'm appreciative of him. It's, um, it's mutual. Since uh, since conversing with him, it, it sent me in the dissenting direction, at least ideologically, I've been 
listening to other voices. I lent my ear to Mershamir. Let's put it that way. I, you, <laughs> to what effect? To what effect? Because John, you linked your. Are, are you talking about Mearsheimer? The um, right, right, Mearsheimer, right, right. Yeah, so, the political scientist. The argument comes down to. Um, well, you don't understand Putin's reasons. You could see why. And right. oh, I see very much why a unfree country would be threatened by a neighboring one who is aspiring westward and was a little more liberal. So to get back to your questions, I think that it's in our interest to support that. And we can very much blame Ukraine when she looks to her left and sees a free and prosperous Poland and she looks to her right and sees the antithesis of this, that she aspires towards the former and not the latter. And I think we have almost a, a an obligation in spirit, if not in letter, to come to to at least support that. We're not putting troops on the ground. I understand that we become, I am a very original founding fathers um, type of foreign uh, policy um, acolyte, but in these globalized times, everything is interconnected and our shores are not really so much separated by an ocean anymore in, in the modern world. And um, I don't believe we should put troops there, but we should continue to support them because, like I said, we we'll support their advance in the field so we can support their advantage on negotiating for. And we need a, yeah, but, uh, to have a true, secure uh, Ukraine and not another uh, Budapest memorandum. Nobody thinks of Poland now as anything um, but a but a free and prosperous country that should stay that way in a necessity for the stability of Europe. And I hope one day we come to think of Ukraine as the same. It's no longer the Ukraine. Ukraine is an old Slavic word for a borderland or frontier, but it's Ukraine to core. And whether you consider them a new nation, I don't care if it was created yesterday or this morning or in 1992 or going back to the Kiev, uh, Rus. I think that is um, making making uh, mention of medieval Kiev, Rus, in order to justify twenty first century annexation of a country is as is as justified as taking a page from the Bible and using it as a as a real estate deed to appropriate the land of somebody living there today has just as much justification and it's tenuous. So whether you consider Ukraine an arbitrary nation or a new nation, it's a nation. There's millions of people that are self-aware and they consider some state and that's the reality on the ground. And anybody who calls somebody else a non-people, this is very sinister rhetoric. And we've had enough precedents of that in very modern, uh, recent 21st century history. And we know the consequences was, of that. So when we get back to the interest of the United States, not only the United States, it's the global interest. I was struck when we started out this conversation with your emphasis on this fact that the demagogue who would declare a non-peoplehood of a people is a dangerous man. 
And you gave examples, among which were Palestinian national aspiration. Uh, what do you think should and what do you think will happen with respect to the national aspiration of Palestinians in the occupied territories? Um, I can, well, I contest the occupied territories uh, designation, but... What would you say instead? Well, I would say that it is an amorphous state right now, and it's something that uh, can continue, but we have, it's, it's the same idea. We have millions of people that are next door who are self-aware, and whether you consider Israel a colonial outpost or whether you consider Palestinians an arbitrary uh, national movement, doesn't matter what you think in theory. The facts are here. There's millions of people that are self-aware on both sides. It's like in Ukraine. That's not, you're not going to change by your theories or your plumbing of the bowels of history and making uh, historical uh, parallels and elucidation. This is all intellectual obfuscation. And um, what needs to happen, first of all, the first obligation of any, of any government is the protection of their people. That comes first. And the Palestinians um, need to undergo a new sense of identity and their relationship to Israel and new leadership. Um, their anti-Semitism is a cancerous root in, the, in this region in the first place for hundreds of years, and that will take a lot to um, eradicate a change of leadership and new environment. But most people, um, we should differentiate because even when Cornell West made the parallel Ukraine uh, spoke about Jews and Palestinians, but I would modify that and say Israelis, Palestinians, because Israelis comprise as much Jews, Muslims, Druze, Buddhists, Ethiopians, Christians, as it does anybody else. Um, so you see that there are Arab Israelis who are making a living and are integrated and just want a normal life like everybody else, but these isolated groups in the West Bank and Gaza, which are two different regions, they're growing up in a milieu that is very toxic. And there needs to undergo a new way of thinking, and at least a new leadership before we can really um, think about what a solution to the conflict is. I think conflict is a bit of a lame term. Media calls this this situation, but yeah, in the meantime, it has to be it has to be mutual. But whether you believe in a two-state, some people are so right-wing in Israel that they come full circle from what is position of the left, meaning that instead of a two-state solution, they. Um, excuse me. 
that they want to give Palestinians their own state because they want to separate a line and say, right. this is yours. You have Palestine. We can treat you the way we treat Lebanon, the way we treat Syria, the way we treat any other country surrounding us. If you send a rocket into our territory now, we're, we're not responsible. I think um, the reason that Sharon went out of Gaza was for practical reasons as more than there were idealistic. We couldn't retain that uh, that status anymore, but we see how that vacuum was filled. How Hamas took over the territory, and now it's basically a launching pad. And Gaza is used to be a beautiful, it's a beautiful shore. Gaza is a beautiful beach, by the way, but um, it's not a very unbeautiful situation over there. And we can't have that on our right side the way we have it on our left side here in Israel. So. Again, I think it's um, uh, okay. the but we, we need a change, for an internal change, yeah, as well as an external one. We can't just, you know, make a contract without uh, stirred behind it. What do you say to those who think the two-state solution is a pipe dream? It's dead. It's never going to happen. There's really only one state de facto between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. There are two peoples or more, but there's only one state. And the question is whether or not everyone has equal uh, status as a member of the polity entailed by that one state and the insistence on Israel, that state being, quote, a Jewish state, close quote, necessarily implies that not everyone can have equal citizenship citizenship status in that context. I think the whole point that Israel came to be is to be a solace um, and a refuge for the Jewish people. If you didn't want a Jewish state, then it's it's the world that made the Jewish state. And to, to if this whole idea that it can be Jewish and democratic, I think is untrue. Um, if you If there's one people that prove that they need their own state and their own army, it's the Jewish people for the past, you know, two, three thousand years. We were exiled from every country that we went into. It's the world that created the Jewish state, not the Jews that created the Jewish state. So it would defeat the whole purpose that the Jewish state was created in the first place to cease to make it a place that Jews have a right of return. Um, but Arabs in Israel are more free than Arabs in Arabs' lands around this territory. That's, that's often pointed out, and I'm not making a, thing like a new point there. Um, so that idea has to be retained because that's the whole point of this place in, in the first place. And, uh, Right. All right. All right. Kayam Shveki, thanks for being uh, willing to discuss these sensitive matters with me here at the Glenn Show. And hats off to you as a writer uh, and as a citizen of the world for putting your money <laughs> where your mouth is. 
uh, I have a great deal of respect for that. Okay. There's a lot of uh, detail that we didn't get to discuss here that uh, we could talk afterwards, but I appreciate it, Glenn. It's, uh, it's, um, it was a pleasure to be here. Speak to you finally. Okay. We'll do it again sometime. We shall.